Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today. And uh, we're, wasn't that just a wonderful time of worship this morning? Just absolutely wonderful time. Appreciate our team of musicians and singers and technicians that pull that together every week. Just so blessed to have all of them lead us every week. But hey, we're um, we're moving into chapter 17 of the story today. And if this is your first time with us, we're going through um, the entire Bible in 31 weeks. And if that is something you would like to do with us, we'd love for you to grab your own copy of the story today before you leave. It's our gift to you. And it's our invitation to come back and and join us with us and do this with us. And all you got to do is start reading. That's it. And we'd love for you to participate Learn the Bible from beginning to end and understand what God is doing from the first pages of the Bible to the end and what he's doing in our lives today. Now, before we go to chapter 17 this morning, I would like to remind you that on September 16th, we are starting our... Saturday night service. That's exactly right. And some of you just learned that for the first time. You're like, what? That's right. Saturday nights, they're going to be identical to Sunday morning. So we will go from having three services on Sunday to having four services throughout the weekend. Nothing changes on Sunday morning. We're just adding the, the, the Saturday night and it will be identical. And we believe God's going to use this to do some special things. And we want to pray about that today. I also want to point out that inside your bulletin, there is a card, and um, I don't have my card with me. It was up here, but it's gone now. But on the card, it says, worship one, serve one. Would you look at that card real quick? Would you take that out? Just in case you don't know, it takes a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of different things to make all of this happen um, on Sunday mornings and now even into Saturday nights. And what I just want to really encourage each and every one of you is to pray and think and say, God, how can you use me? How can I be a part of what you're doing here? And we tried to adopt this mentality. And if you have served here already, you kind of know, you've heard us say it, that, that with the way our, our services are set up, you should have no problem worshiping one service and serving another service. And we don't want anybody to miss worship to serve. And so now there's, in September, there's going to be four choices to worship. And we're just asking you to worship at one of those and serve at one of those. And that could be anything from, from being a greeter at the door to helping us get cars parked. I'm assuming, just looking at you, it's pretty full out there this morning. Some of you rode the shuttle. We need shuttle drivers. We need people who's like, I'll help you serve communion or, or prepare communion. There's, there's, there's behind the scenes things to do. There's things downstairs, upstairs, children's ministry, educational stuff all kinds of things that God might be calling you right now to say, I could do that. I want to do something that has God's name on it. And I want to be used of God to do that. And if that's you, then would you just put your name on that card and you can drop it off at the welcome center, throw it in the offering basket, put in those medical metal receptacles back there in the back. We'd love to connect with you. And by signing that card, you're just saying, yeah, somebody call me. Let's talk about me getting involved. That's what that is means. So we'd love to have that conversation with you. So you pray and think on that. We need you. I'm no bones about it. We need you. So let's pray together. And can we focus our prayer this morning before we get into chapter 17 on what's going to happen on Saturday nights? Would you join me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are giving us opportunities in many ways we never dreamed about having. Lord, we believe that you're opening doors for us. And Lord, we want to walk through those doors. We believe Saturday nights, Lord, creating another opportunity that's identical to Sunday for people to worship who can on Sundays is one of those doors. Lord, we believe you're already going before us. We believe, Lord, you're already softening hearts and opening minds of of people who, who desperately want to connect with a church like this and to be exposed to the good news, people who are hungry 
for your word and for relationships with others and a great relationship with you. So Lord, we would just pray that you help all the details come together, that you would bring people together, that Lord, you will do a new thing in many people's lives because there's another opportunity. Lord, we we pray for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, please go ahead and open your story Bibles to page, well, page 230, 231. It's right in there. It's chapter 17. And uh, can I ask you a question as you're turning over there to chapter 17? Maybe you're like me. I really just want to find out if you have a similar phrase to me. I find myself saying this from time to time. What was that guy thinking? Have you ever said something like that? Let me give you an example of how this comes out of me. Football season is starting. Everybody happy about that? Football season? All right. Okay. Have you ever been watching a football game and the quarterback makes an ill-advised throw and it gets picked off and the other team runs it back? And you know what comes out of my mouth? What was that guy thinking? Have you been there? How about this one? Have you ever been driving down the highway? I hate this. This happens to me all the time. It feels like got the cruise control set. You're in the right lane, minding your own business. You're just cruising down the road. Life is good. Somebody passes you on the left and then pulls in front of you and slows down. Does it ever happen? What is this guy thinking? And then you got to go around and then you just play this game. And then I get off and get a Diet Coke because I forget that guy. I'm going to let him go on. You know, what was that guy? I mean, I could give you lots of examples. Have you ever been in the grocery store and you've been in the express lane, you know, the 12 items or less lane and you're ready there and you're in that lane because you want to get through fast. You're not there to mosey. And so you're next in line and the person in front of you buys their milk or whatever and then pulls out their checkbook to write a check. What is that guy thinking? Uh, that doesn't bother you? <laughs> bothers me. I almost want to say, here, just swipe my debit card. Go, see ya. And uh, anyway, what was that guy? You know what? When I read the first page of chapter 17, that phrase came out of my mouth. What was that guy thinking? Now, let's read it together. Page 231. This is Second Kings chapter 21, verse 1. It says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. What was this guy thinking? Especially after we read about his father and all the great things he did just in the previous chapter. Now, by this point in the story, it probably shouldn't come as a shocker that there was a king who did evil, honestly. I mean, because of the 38 kings between the divided kingdoms, 33 of them, the the Bible says, were evil. Only a few of them were good. But it is surprising that this king would be so evil when we know so much about what God did for little old Judah under his father's reign. His father was a godly man. Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of the north, were wiped out by the Assyrians. We saw that last week. They are gone forever. They're the lost tribes of Israel. They're just done. All that's left is little old Judah. And if you were here last week, I compared them to the little, the, the little town of Hickory, Indiana, and the movie Hoosiers. That's what Judah is. It's all that's left. 
And king, uh, the king of Judah, last chapter, was King Hezekiah. He followed God. He, he turned the hearts of, of the people into, towards God. Things were going well. King Hezekiah prayed. Remember, the Assyrians were coming with 185,000 soldiers, and God sends this one angel in and just annihilates the Assyrian army and proves himself faithful. But by the end of chapter 16, you, we would go, I think Israel's got it. I think they figured it out. But Hezekiah dies. And his son Manasseh takes the people right back into idol worship. Right back into ungodliness. Right back into evil things. What was this guy thinking? And I wonder what went wrong. You know, what, what went wrong? How could the apple have fallen so far from the tree, from father to son? And I've just kind of accepted, because there's no answer to that right here in, in the Bible, uh, of why his son was so different from his father. And I've got these questions that will never have answers. Like, did, did Hezekiah never have that father-son talk? You know, did, did he ever sit his son down and say, we are going to follow the Lord, and if you just follow the Lord with all your heart, then you'll be a good leader? I don't know if that happened or not. I, I don't know if it did happen, and maybe Manasseh would just like, forget you, Dad. I don't want anything to do with that. I, I just don't know. Was it the fact that Manasseh was only 12 years old when he became king? That he was just too young, too quick for this kind of responsibility, too easily influenced? We just don't know. But at any rate, this is what he did. It was nothing like his father. Look on page 230. This is 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 2. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as, king, uh, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry host. <coughs> he sacrificed his own son in the fire did you catch that? He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Now that's not all. If you were to keep reading, you would find out that, that uh, Manasseh, he carved an Asherah pole and he put it in the temple. Now an Asherah pole is this object of worship and they were usually dedicated to foreign gods. And it's not because he just made one. He made one and where did he put it? He put it in the temple. This ups the ante quite a bit. This is like saying, you know, I don't even care that this is God's house. I don't care all that happened here. Do you remember when they dedicated this, the temple under Solomon and Solomon prayed and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and all of this? This is the place. And he put this object of worship to a foreign God right smack in the middle of God's house. And let me just tell you, God hated Asherah's poles. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21, there's this verse that talks about how much God hates this and how he did not want this to be a part of his chosen nation. It says this, do not set up any wooden asterisk pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God and do not erect a sacred stone for these the Lord your God hates. 
So he took like this one thing that God hates like more than anything and he puts it in God's house. So that's just some things you don't do in God's temple. And that's one of them. A few years back, speaking of football, a few years back, I was watching a game between the San Francisco 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys. Now, let me take you back to the time, the era of this football game. Terrell Owens was a wide receiver for the 49ers, and Emmett Smith and Troy Aikman were the Dallas Cowboys running back. So this was a good era in football, okay? Now, let me ask you this. Are there any Cowboys fans in here? Okay, okay. And I heard a whoop. So yes, there is. Anybody know Cowboys fans? And you know, like, friends, like, I got this friend, he's a great Okay, how many of you know then that for the Dallas Cowboys fans that the Dallas Cowboys are more than just a football team? Okay, this is like, like they used to say that there was an opening in the top of Cowboy Stadium so God could look in and see his team. You know, that's what they used to say. That little star at the middle of the field, it's more than just a logo, the star on the helmet. These things mean something to true diehard Cowboys fans. And on this particular game, Terrell Owens of the 49ers, he catches... He scores a touchdown, and do you remember what he did? Some of you are nodding. He runs to the middle of the field, and he does this to the sky. Now, he would say later, I think I got a picture of that. He would say later, there it is. He would say later that, oh, I was just praising God, but that's not how they took it in Dallas. If you ever watch the video, booze throughout the whole stadium. Okay, this was assigned to many Cowboys with massive disrespect. You don't do that in here. So a few plays later, Emmett Smith from the Cowboys scores a touchdown. So you know what he did, remember? He, he ran to the star and he spiked the football. Like, yeah, like you don't do that in here as a, as a sign of, of a reaction to what T.O. did. And then a few pay, plays later, Terrell Owens scores another touchdown. And then he runs to the star. And then there's a big fight that breaks out right on the star between both teams. If you've never seen this, you need to go YouTube this. It's pretty good. There's just some things you don't do in Cowboy Stadium, and that's one of them. Well, there are some things that you just don't do in God's house, and Manasseh did it. That's what he did. And God said this, not in my house, Manasseh. You do not do this in my house. Look at page 232. This is what the Lord did. The Lord said through his servants, the prophet, so God sends a message to King Manasseh through a prophet. Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day day. You think God means business? Absolutely. So God's basically saying, Judah, you're done. You're done. And God takes Manasseh out. 
And if you were to keep reading, you would learn that the Assyrians came back and, and, and they took um, the king captive. And the Bible says that the Assyrians, they put a hook through his nose and shackles around his feet and they let him off. Tragic end to something that could have been better. But wait a minute. That's not the end of the story. Something happens. There is a 180. There is a change. There's a turnaround. This is what happens. Page 232, right at the bottom of the page. In his distress, this is Manasseh. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Did you catch that? This guy's done so much evil that God's going to wipe him off the earth. He, he stuck an asterisk pole right in God's house. But yet he humbled himself and he turned his eyes to God. And let me tell you something. This reminds us of a very important truth about God. God will respond to humility every time. That doesn't matter how far away you are. If you turn to God in humility, he'll listen. And here's this evil king who humbles himself before the Lord and God listens and God has mercy. Here's what it says. So God brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom and then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Manasseh spent the rest of his life trying to undo the damage that he caused. He got rid of the idols. He, he, he restored the temple the way God wanted it to be restored. And, um, and you have this, this moment where it went from, what was he thinking, to, yeah, all right, good job. And, that, and that's Manasseh's story. And King Manasseh's story, it's really important for two reasons. And there's plenty of reasons, but there's two reasons today that I want to focus on it because there's other parts of chapter 17 you need to read. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but his story specifically. The first one is this, and I hope you already know this, and I hope for those that don't, this is good news. Manasseh's story shows us that no one is too far gone for God. No one is too far gone for God. It's never too late. And you know, some of you might have walked in here today, and that's in the back of your mind. It's probably too late for me, but let's see what happens. I'm here to tell you today, it's never too late. And there's, never you've never, there's nothing you've ever done that's going to make God not love you, not care for you, not desire for you to be in a great relationship with him. And I can tell you, the key to that is what Manasseh showed, humility. Humility before God. Humility. Um, few years ago, I heard about a guy by the name of Michael Franzese, and um, it was a new name to me. It's not anybody I knew, no, nobody I knew at the time, and I don't know him personally, just for sake of clarity, but I heard about this guy named Michael Franzese who used to be a mobster that gave his life to Christ. And I thought, no, that's not how it works, because there's only two ways you get out of the mob, in a body bag or witness protection. No one just leaves the mob and can walk the streets and talk openly about it. That's not how I understood the mob worked. So I began to dig into his story a little bit, and I found out that he wrote a book called Blood Covenant. And it tells his story about how he was involved in one of the, the I mean, he's the son of, of a notorious crime family, the Colombo family, and, uh, and his father was a big wig in it, and he was an upcoming captain in the mob family. And at the height 
of his leadership, he was making um, through legal and illegal businesses five to eight million dollars a week. Okay, this is back in the 80s. Okay, so translate, do the math. And um, I won't tell you his whole story because if you go, if you want a page turner book where you, you pick it up and you're not going to put it down until you get done, it's this book. It's Blood Covenant. Today, he's a Christian. He tells the story of how he became a Christian, how he left the mob and lived to tell about it and all of these things. And now he's a minister and he travels around. He tells his story, encourages people and his message, you're never too far gone for God to love you. You're never too far gone for God to do something in your life. And maybe one day we'll have him here to speak. I think that'd be a pretty fascinating, fascinating thing. But Blood Covenant, and I, I, I read his book, and I was, I was amazed by it, and just blown away by the life that this guy has lived. And it just reminded me that if it can work for King Manasseh, and it can work for Michael Francis, then it can work for you. And a lot of you are here today because of the very truth that, that, that no one is ever too far gone from God to love. So we need to pay attention. But there's, there's another part of King Manasseh's story that has significant implication to your Christian life today, and it's this. We begin to see in this part of the Bible a new covenant full of hope start to take shape. It's right here in this part of the Bible, right here in the Old Testament, we start to see God's upper story starting to become clearer and clearer of a new covenant full of hope. We've talked a lot about God's upper story and his vision to bring his creation into a great relationship with him. That's what he wants for you. He wants to, for you to know him personally. He wants to walk daily with you. And, and literally the song, he walks with me, he talks with me. That is what God wants. He, that's his upper story. But this is the part of the story that things are going to have to change. Israel is not getting over their, their, their addiction to idols. and all, Something is going to change, and we're going to learn, learn about it. So Manasseh, he has this spiritual revival in his life. He cleanses the temple and all those things. But tragically, unlike his father, the people of Judah didn't follow him. So he's a leader who's saying, we need to follow God. But for the most part, the country said, no, nah, we're good with our idols. They didn't follow him. They didn't trust God like he, like he had been delivered, but they didn't want to go with him. It wasn't enough. Do you remember what God said to Manasseh? He said, I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's a pretty good mental image, isn't it? So here's what happened. God allowed the Babylonians to come in and conquer Jerusalem. Most of the residents over time were deported to Babylon, including four young men that we're going to learn about next week named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those names ring a bell to you. Maybe you've ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den. It's that Daniel. He was part of this from the tribe of Judah who was deported in this season. We're going to learn about him next week. That's chapter 18. But after the Babylonians deported uh, what was left of God's chosen people, Jerusalem, God's holy city, was empty. Empty. The temple that Solomon had built, that so much had happened, completely destroyed, and the city was burned to the ground. So this place that meant so much to God and his people, it's, it's gone. And, and if that's all you knew at this point of the story, you, you might be tempted to think, well, God's little experiment to, to, to dwell with his creation, it's over. That's it. They're gone. Everybody's gone. 
But here's the thing. It's not over. In fact, it's really just beginning. And you're going to see something fantastic here in the text in just a moment. This is when we see a guy by the name of Ezekiel come onto the scene. Now, this is the part where the story actually helps us a lot because it takes all these details and puts it together. But actually, this comes from different places. So we're going to go from 2 Kings. We're going to go to the book of Ezekiel. You got to pull these details and this narrative together. And that's what the story does. But if you were to turn to page 245 in your story Bibles, this is Ezekiel chapter 36. We see this, this prophet of God come onto the scene. His name is Ezekiel. And God has a message for Ezekiel to deliver to the, what's left of Israel. They've been deported. They're slaves. They're not loving life. They're not having a good time. They're in a foreign land. They're away from the promised land. All hope is lost at this point. But here comes Ezekiel. And God says, Ezekiel, I got something for you to say. And if you look at the bottom of page 245, this is the message to the what's ever left of Israel from Ezekiel. He has a message of hope. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. Do you hear what God's saying to them? It's not the end. There's more to come. There's hope. I will bring you back. Even after everything, I'll bring you back. And he says this in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you, pay close attention, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. What is God saying here? What is God telling these deported Israelites? He's saying to them, I'm not done with you. And I still have a plan, and I'm going to do a new thing. Now, this new thing, it's not going to be written down in stone. It's not going to be a bunch of laws that they didn't have the ability to keep anyway. God's like, I'm going to do this new thing, and I'm going to put this new thing in your heart. There's going to be this new spirit in you. What is God talking about? The Spirit will help you become and be all that I desire for your life. That's Ezekiel's message. It will help you obey me, and, and, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, but it's going to be a new thing moving forward. This, my friends, is the promise of what will become known as the new covenant. This is God's new thing. It's a new covenant. And about 600 years after Ezekiel delivers this incredible news of hope to the slaves in Babylon, who is what's left of Israel, about 600 years after that, Jesus met with his disciples the night that he was betrayed. We read about it in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, and it says this, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is poured out for you. There's this incredible moment of connection between what's happening with Israel and what God is going to do with Jesus. He said, I'm going to do a new thing. Of course, they didn't know what that new thing was right then, but God knew because he has his upper story. I am going to do a new thing. It's going to be a new covenant. And then remember, this news came at what? The lowest point for the Israelites. They're battered, they're broken, they're exiled in a foreign land. They're helpless, they're hopeless. All the words you want to put to it. And God stepped forward with a word of hope. And I think about us, that maybe that's how, exactly how many of us were when we became Christians. Life had beat you up a little bit. You had a hard time seeing hope moving forward. Much of that was from our own choices. Many of you could say, oh, I had drifted far away from God, far away from my upbringing, far away from what my parents taught me, far away from what my grandparents did. You were at a point, you were far away from God, and it was, a, it was kind of a hopeless place. But then you heard about a new thing. You heard about something different something you'd never experienced before. You learned about Jesus, and with that learning came, came hope. And I know we're not to the New Testament yet. This is just a forecasting, a foreshadowing of what God is doing in his upper story. But can I take you to the New Testament for just a minute? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is verses talking about this new thing that God is doing, this new way of life spoken of by Ezekiel, forecasting what is to come. And it's going to come through faith. It's going to be because God's going to put his spirit in us. He's going to do a new thing in our hearts, and it's going to come through his son, Jesus. If you skip through a few more verses down to Romans 5, 5, it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been what? Poured into our where? Our hearts. Through what? His spirit who has been given to us. This is this new thing that Ezekiel was talking about. Now, God showed us his justice when he punished Israel for their sins. But he shows us his grace and his faithfulness with the new covenant promises. So we see both. We see his justice and we see his grace. And I think God still shows his justice in the new covenant by providing a substitute who shed his blood for us. Jesus paid our penalty, which displays God's grace. And that's what the cross is all about. With God, and I hope you know this, there is always hope. And in our failure, God offers a future. And that's what's going on with the Israelites right now. In their failure, there's always hope. And Ezekiel tells them about this hope. And in their failure, God offers a future. And what's that future? That future is the coming Messiah. And God's going to do something brand new. God's going to do a new thing. He's going to give them a new spirit about them. He's going to give them a new heart, a new vision, a new, new, new. And that's what Jesus did. And that new still happens today 
And it's a big reason for why we changed the name of our church to New Life. Because God's still doing a new thing today in many people's lives. With God, there's always hope. In our failure, God always offers a future. Would you pray?